Hello and welcome to episode 286 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in different locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. Hello. Hello. Episode 86. 286, yeah. I, yeah, no, I, I, there's not an obvious Seahawks receiver. Was Jeremy Stevens 86? <laughs> That's what I want to I say here. That's who comes to mind. Let's stick with there's not an obvious Seahawks oh, receiver. Oh, he, he was, in fact, number 86. <laughs> Jeremy Stevens edition. Oh, dear. I feel like we might have done this exact same thing 100 episodes ago. <laughs> it is very plausible. Cannot rule that out. Just like the shouts to Alex Bannister last week. Oh, every, every time we hit every, every hundred episodes. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the appropriate amount of time to remember Alex Bannister, right? Uh-huh. It's the appropriate amount of time to have forgotten that we mentioned Alex Bannister a hundred episodes ago. Exactly. So sadly, we will not be sharing a beer this week. Do you have a beer? No, I'm drinking tea. <laughs> I was going to say had Ted Lasso of you, but that's quite the opposite. Ted Lasso hates tea. Oh, yes. Uh, I have with me, though, the uh, as we continue fresh hop season, this is very late fresh hop season, maybe a little past fresh hop season, but the Cloudburst. Not so fresh. A little less fresh. The Cloudburst put away wet IPA, which is their final wet hop brew of the season. They did 11 beers, 17 turns, which was approximately 250 total barrels, plus three more collab brews away from home. They drove 2,372 miles on 13 trips to nine farms for 11 total varieties, ate 43 tacos, 14 burritos, a few tortas and tamales to boot, also one quesadilla. Uh, Not going to lie, they say we're pretty tired, but that pales in comparison to the farmers, farmhands, agronomists, process operators, warehousers, and countless others that worked every day on long shifts for 40 days straight. So let's give it up to the people in hops as none of these amazing beers would be possible without them uh this one uh 23 pounds of talus from peril farms Perot farms probably Perot farms that results in an explosion of bright tropical and citrus notes all the way through it doesn't get any wetter than this i really like that though the description shouting out everybody who's involved in the process right like the brewer is kind of like the rock star of beer right but there's so many more people who go into it behind the scenes that's always my favorite thing where it's like like i listened to uh whatever six part episode about the making of the film halloween a few years ago i'd never seen the film halloween and even i like what half watched it but it was like the process of making halloween is so much more interesting to me than actually seeing halloween in the same way that for the fresh hops, all the people who are involved into making these fresh hops happen, those are the people who are really doing the work along the way, right? The brewer is taking all of this different work that everybody else in the entire line is doing. There's so much more to it than just the brewer, than just the fresh hops, right? It's not just a two-part process. Yeah, toast to everybody involved without question uh, in this process. I, I would say my similar experience was listening to The Good Place, the podcast, and 
people who came on who were involved in all different aspects of producing the show and understanding more about what goes into it, you know, that is obviously so much more than the actors and even the writers that you know. So, you should watch The Good Place, though. It's a pretty good show. I I, you, I was going to say, I don't know that I prefer, as much as I loved The Good Place, the podcast, I don't know that I preferred it to The Good Place, the television series. <laughs> so we differ on that one. Well, there was one burrito on that one. Um, <laughs> well played. The rest of our toast this week, uh, we mentioned this when it was first announced, but revisiting this now that it's actually say, happened. This is Groundhog Day. What episode is this? The stretch Did of we Thomas- do episode 286 last week also? Well, the stretch of Thomas Street outside Climate Pledge Arena was officially renamed Lenny Wilkins Way last Thursday on Wilkins' 84th birthday. Uh, it was not ideal weather for it, is it? Absolutely poured rain all day long. But uh, they moved the ceremony indoors to the armory, and it was a very nice event. Jamal Crawford spoke, uh, along with Mary Jenny Durkin and, and Lenny Wilkins himself, of course. And uh, it was great to see a number of Sonics legends in, in attendance, George Carl, Wally Walker, Jack Sigma, Fred Brown, among others, Xavier McDaniel, Dale Ellis. So uh, some, definite, some definite great names of Sonics history and uh, a as we said at the time, it deserved honor for Lenny Wilkins and everything he's done in this community. Absolutely. And again, because it's Groundhog Day, the number one way to be able to honor Lenny Wilkins would be by bringing professional basketball back to Seattle. Naming a street is one thing. It's very nice that they've done this for Lenny Wilkins, but you talk about all these players. They're in the freaking armory. You know what I mean? They're not even in the building. Like you can't put them in climate pledge arena. They have to go into the armory in front of a mod pizza. Well, I like, think the idea was if the weather had been, had been good, you would hold the ceremony outdoors on the street, not, not in the arena. They won't even let basketball inside <laughs> of the arena is what you're saying to me. There may, there may also have been the morning skate may have been going on. I'm not sure if that was a conflict. This was the morning of the uh, Kraken's win over the Montreal or not over the Canadians. I should say over the Minnesota wild. Well, it's really great that everybody got to congregate in front of the Blue Water Taco Grill. Like, the, there's all these different people from Blue Water. The Blue Water is not there anymore. Ah, oh! no, no, it still is. No, I'm, never mind. I'm not thinking something else. Okay, thank you. <laughs> right in front of the Mod Pizza. The all of these, all of these people who've been fixtures of Seattle basketball, right? Jamal Crawford never even played in Seattle. You know, if a team would have been here, he eventually would have played on the Sonics at some point, never even got that opportunity. But all of these people who've been involved in Seattle basketball for the last 40, 50 years, having a place for them to congregate, that's not in front of the mod pizza. That's actually inside of the arena around professional basketball would be the number one way to honor Lenny Wilkins as he's getting older, bringing a team back, having a place for George Carl and Dale Ellis and Wally Walker and Jack Sigma to be there at a first NBA professional game back for the Seattle Supersonics would be a huge deal. Agreed. Honoring a street, it's nice. <laughs> I got to say, by the way, these hops seem very fresh and very potent. So we're still in fresh hop season. There we go. The, the other thing, this is, I don't know if this is technically a toast, but uh, e- e- whether or not it's still fresh hop season, November has become one of my favorite months of the year. And you know why that is? Why is that? It's because it's fast food month at our friends' little Woody's. Oh, hello. I thought you were saying it was the anniversary of when you declared it to be the greatest sports week in Seattle history. Was that in November or was that I, December? It, it seems like it probably was in November. It might have, was the end of November. It might have been December. There's a lot of sports going on right now. 
There, there are. I've There's been even... in all sorts. I went. I did back to backs professional sports two weeks in a row. Yes. So, uh, uh, this week they're starting out with the, uh, the little baconator and, uh, quite outstanding. So, uh, definitely they're running back all four this year. The, the little big Mac, of course, uh, the, the little sourdough Jack, and then, uh, the, the little crunch wrap Supreme. So be sure to check all of those out at what is over the next month here. I know that there are some fixtures. All, all four of these are fixtures of Fast Food Month at Lowity's. Correct. I would love for their, one of them. You take one week and try something new out, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that, w- that would be inappropriate. Because there's definitely, like, you're going to have the little ba- Big Mac every year. And the, the Baconator, they, they do a phenomenal job with that. So I'd want to see that on the menu permanently. Also, I, maybe maybe the I sourdough the, jack because I need the the curly fries are the real highlight of we that. We just one. don't we don't like the crunch wrap. No, I think that's the one that's going to go if there's one. Yeah. Okay. We're agreed on that one. I mean, when they did the taco taco time, I'm sure that was very difficult to do the crisp chicken burrito. Yes. The taco time style. Like I get that they don't need to do that every year, but there's all sorts of fast food out there in the world. All right, our last toast this week uh, to uh, Carson Bruner, who was named Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week and Freshman of the Week after recording 13 tackles and forcing a fumble on a sack Saturday in UW's win over Stanford. And also kicker Peyton Henry, who was named Special Teams Player of the Week for the Huskies. So uh, a very awarded week for UW football. Awarded uh, and deservedly so going into Stanford, going to the farm. And beating Stanford for the first time since Tyrone Willingham was the head coach. You could say what you could say about this season or this game, and we'll talk about it later, but it's still uh, nothing to scoff at. It's going like, to Stanford and it's like neither Steve Sarkeesian nor Chris Peterson managed to accomplish in their entire tenures as UW head coach. A house of horrors. But the other piece about, <laughs> I mean, both uh, Carson Bruno, have we talked? Uh, what is. Child, nephew? Child. He's, he's Child. Mark Bruner's son, yeah. There we go. Second generation UW coming in and monstrous performance as a freshman. Like, it was pretty incredible to see. And you, you can see, God, I, I saw, I was scrolling through my old tweets today. And I was looking Huge at- Huge mistake. I was mostly deleting them all. But every single time I tweeted about the Pelton cast, the- I was looking at the team. This was 2017 going into that season. And I was talking about how much experience depth there was on that team. And I looked back at that roster and I was like, damn, this is a stacked roster. <laughs> I mean, you look at like the players who weren't starting. Miles Bryant, Levi, Anwar Zirike, like those types of players who weren't starting for that team. It was a monstrous team. And I think the UW team, like you look at somebody like Carson Bruner and you look at the youth that UW has, this could be, again, not to speak positively about UW, because I don't feel comfortable doing it. But you look at the kind of youth that they have, especially on defense, and I think we may look back on this team in a handful of years and be like, they had such an incredible collection of talent as young players on this defense. Well, I certainly hope we say that. Uh, as to being Mark Bruner's son, it was interesting. So this was the most fired up I've been about a UW football win in an extremely long time. Probably, I guess, since one of the comebacks last year, we did an emergency pod after the comeback last year, right? I I don't want to forget that we did have, I also tweeted about, I didn't realize, I'd forgotten that Dylan Morris was from Graham Kapowson. Yeah. 
I tweeted about when we signed Dylan Morris, completely forgot about it. Uh, about the difference between Graham and Kapowson? No, just the incredible amount of talent coming out of Graham Kapowson. Uh, but I also want to say that having a reliable kicker, and as much as Peyton Henry, Henry is a reliable kicker, is the most underrated thing to have in all of football in general, but college football in particular. It is something that few teams have. I think, frankly, part of the reason that they were able to get away with the play call that they made at the end of that game, the throw in the end zone, was well, we don't need to like try that hard to pick up the first down because where we're at, we can feel comfortable with Peyton Henry making this kick, which you can't say with every college kicker for sure. But anyways, I was saying, so the Cam Cleland is the color analyst for UW football now after he? Damon Heward relinquished wow, that role. I wondered who that was. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And he was talking about how like he learned everything he knew from Mark Bruner. And there so they had, had that little connection on the, uh, on the radio broadcast. At long last, it is time to continue our search for Seattle's best fried chicken. And to help us do that, we welcome back both our, our cracking correspondent. And at this point, I guess it's safe to say fried chicken correspondent, although we've also had third Pelton brother Chris Smith a couple of times. Please welcome back to the pod, Randy Cote. I've got two words for you. Fucking finally. <laughs> how, how long ago did you go? I should look. I, I should look this up. I should pull this up. It has been a minute. Um, I'm sure I, you have a spreadsheet on this. <laughs> not yet. Uh, no, I'd considered going tonight to get a refresher, but then I figured you got to get both. And well, well, key key update here. It is a timely decision for us to record this pod, the first semifinal in our search for Seattle's best fried chicken, because Cookies Country Chicken announced Tuesday that their Pioneer Square pop-up has permanently closed is they transition to their upcoming permanent brick-and-mortar location, which is they, they announced for the first time will be on Market Street in Ballard across from the Swedish campus. Wow. Breaking news here on the Pelton cast. If you signed up for the fried chicken alerts, you just got a notification. <laughs> yeah, pinged. Yeah, pinged real bad. So you could not have gone and refreshed your memory on cookies. The number one seed in our search, which is one of the two <laughs> semifinalists this week. Although you could have gone up way north to heaven sent, perhaps. When or, is that location opening? The the brick and mortar? Did not give a specific date for when that's going to open. But fingers crossed before we get to the final. <laughs> this is going to be the first ever chicken search that's going to last like multiple years. <laughs> or you're going to have to make the trek to Seabrook to truly judge <laughs> i mean you're gonna have to go to the ballard location randy because as with taco time northwest you're going to have to go to all cookies country chicken <laughs> locations that is the spreadsheet that is truly underway i've been to two of the two cookies wow. locations 100 compliance mission accomplished both official visits <laughs> you i but there there have been so many previous locations of cookies country chicken i feel like you look you can't compete in the past but those locations that have already closed, you'll never be able to go to if you had if you weren't at them. True. I suppose it that's is, true. It is it is my Moses Lake, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. So, Randy, let's start with your impressions. This was uh, these were your first two visits to to Cookies, I presume. Uh, correct. Yes, Th this was my first time having Cookies Country Chicken. What What were your takeaways? So. I will say big picture, uh, the full suite of what cookies offered was 
fantastic. Uh, it was a, um, you know, I'd have truly judged the entire experience. The order was vast and included many things. Um, I got a thigh for the sort of head to head thigh competition. Um, got mac and cheese and uh, mashed potatoes as the sides. Got the popcorn chicken bites, which I think is among the best sort of like chicken nuggets I think I've ever had. They're, they're wow. pretty like uh, pretty big pieces of chicken breast, a lot of coating. You paid five bucks for a bag and that bag in and of itself was more chicken than I could have eaten for five dollars. Um, uh, picked up a, a sandwich from my husband, got a great review from him, but I, I stuck to the thigh, the sides, all the sauces were amazing. Like I love, love sauces. So, um, yeah, the sort of the, for the full package of cookies, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, and so when, you know, we were quote unquote in the neighborhood out on the Washington coast and had the opportunity to go again, we went, got sandwiches and fries, more sauce, um, little different, simpler menu out there, but overall, like I, I'd, I'd gladly go to cookies anytime. It was a, a great experience. And as documented on the internet, I had no problem getting cookies <laughs> <laughs> two times. I rolled up to Pioneer Square, ordered it, waited for about 15 minutes. Um, just drove away and ate it. There was no drama. Truly cookies blessed. I'm hoping that's going to be the typical experience at the Ballard location. And that is the typical, was the typical location, the typical experience at, in Pioneer Square for people that were not the fabulous Pelton brothers. Chris had trouble at least one time also, I think. Maybe, right, right. maybe that's not true. All right, Randy, how about Heaven Sent? Heaven Sent, you know, as mentioned in the, in the quarterfinals, you know, big, you know, long time Heaven Sent uh, enjoyer. Uh, my, my second visit was, was great. It was, um, even better than my, my quarterfinal visit. I think the, the consistency was, um, just on display going to heaven sent. It was fast. It was fresh, delicious. The, you know, chicken thigh was, you know, it was everything. It was juicy, crunchy, great seasoning. Um, even though I knew I didn't need to get spicy strips, I was there. So I got spicy strips and a roll um, yeah, just, I mean, I, I would say that the two big things where I look at these two experiences is cookies has the full sort of variety and specialness. And it's so, you know, I think just unique and special are the words. And then the, the, the number one thing to describe heaven sent is just consistency. Like, just like Azelle's, you know, you're going to get a, a pretty consistent product at a high level. Um, and that's sort of where I'm, you know, between those two. That's interesting because I, I would say that what stood out to me going back to each of these locations, it's been a couple of weeks since we went to Heaven Sent. We went before the uh, the most recent UW home game against UCLA, UW football game, uh, and then going to Cookies last Thursday and, and actually getting some fried chicken there. I was glad that I went back to both of these locations because when we talked about them in the quarterfinals, I voted against Heaven Sent in the quarterfinals. Uh, I did vote for Cookies, but... Not, not with the enthusiasm that I expected for a number one seed. And when I went to both of these locations the second time, actually, I guess three, I've gone to three times to heaven said, because I went up in Everett before a storm game back when I thought we were going to do this like months ago before <laughs> things got pushed out. So I've, I've been to, uh, 
to heaven sent a total of four times this summer now. And the visit before the quarterfinal was disappointing, but the last two visits reconfirmed that that was just an off day. The fact that the, the thigh I had was kind of dry and disappointing. Heaven sent remains extremely high quality as far as, you know, locations with multiple locations. They're not really a chain in the same way that Azelle's is, but you know, uh, multiple locations in that same tradition. So I, I was glad that I got that consistency after an off day. Are we going into your vote? I mean, we, I feel like we don't need to get into these two chickens that much, right? Like we've talked about these two different chicken places, pretty ad nauseum, right? Like I hope not to that point. Randy, we've been talking about chicken for a very long time, (laughs) but Randy is the new one to this. Uh, I want him to go second. Do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. So when I, when I say that, I mean, heaven sent was better than my quarterfinal experience, but cookies blew away my quarterfinal experience, uh, where, you know, there, it wasn't very spicy that time. This time I stepped my order up to a three-star spice, which is a reminder. You kind of have to special order. They do, they do it specifically on a sandwich Nashville style with spice. But if you want it on the fried chicken, that's something you're going to have to specifically uh, request. And it was, you know, it's not as, even the three star is not as hot as the mild hot chicken that I had in Nashville a couple weeks ago, but there's some definite kick to it. Uh, And the thing that stood out this time, and I went with a thigh and a leg and just did the fries, which I think if we ever do Seattle's best fries are in contention there uh, as well. And the level of greasiness of the chicken was totally on point. It reminded me of why we had cookies as the number one seed, why we were so blown away when we went there during the original search. And so therefore, I have to vote for cookies to advance to the final in our search for Seattle's best fried chicken. Wow. Randy. Well, you know, for me, like I said, it it was, it was a tough call. I think the, I will add my praise to the, to the fries. I thought the fries were phenomenal. You pair that with some of those dipping sauces that they have. They're great, but we're looking for the best chicken. And when I had the thigh, which I tried to keep as the consistent item between everything I've tried of all of the things I've had at cookies, fries, sides, popcorn, chicken bites, sandwiches. The thigh was the worst product that I had from cookies, country chicken. Um, I, I was the, I, maybe it was an off day, right? We've talked about this, but, um, right. It was very disappointing that all the other products I've had were so good and so high quality, but the thigh would just did not live up to, you know, it actually was in the shadow of all these other products. Um, and it was the first thing I had though, coming off of, you know, right when I opened the bag, I tried to have it as hot and fresh as possible. And it was just one day after I'd had heaven sent and it was just not the same experience. It wasn't as, it wasn't as crunchy. It wasn't as juicy. Um, and then to go on and have all of these other cookies products, I was like, oh, I, I can see what the hype for cookies is, but it just did not translate in the thigh. Um, and, you know, the, like I said, the consistency, the quality, the juiciness, I got to give it to heaven sent for my semi-final vote. I, it, it is truly, um, you know, quality fried chicken and they're not messing around with any of the other extras. They can just focus on the chicken, uh, even though cookies is special. So I do want to pause here to note: I like the thigh is the consistent thing to judge across these, uh, the other day, 
a group of friends got Pagliacci and there was someone who was a visitor to Seattle had never had Pagliacci before. And the group ordered, uh, I forget what they ordered, uh, but one of the vegetarian options because two of the members of the group were vegetarian. And then the, the newcomer also ordered a single cheese slice because his logic was, I want to judge any pizza place on how well they do cheese, not something where, you know, I might just like the toppings. I want to see, like, you can't hide when you're doing plain cheese. And I think that's kind of the same as a consistent thing with the thigh. Did that person eat meat though? Or were they a vegetarian also? They did eat meat, but did, did not do the, do the pepperoni. I mean, I, I wasn't extra asked for pepperoni at Pagliacci. I know. That's the it's flagship kind of, it's item. undefeated. I will okay. say last night we had Pagliacci's for, we had my sibling game night last night. We ordered a pesto primo, a PSR combo, and my picky little sister wanted a plain cheese. And I had not had the just, just cheese pizza in a couple of years and God, it was good. <laughs> The plain cheese is phenomenal, but that extra pepperoni with the grease on it, like, come on. Nothing yeah, compares to that. There were also a lot of jokes about the Pelton cast being our sponsor made when they got it. So, or the Pelton being the sponsor of the Pelton cast, I should say. What are the jokes about this? I don't get it. I, I, it's I, just stating a who, fact. Who's laughing yeah. when you've got free pizza? No, exactly. not, like in, not like yeah. in a negative sense. A lot of jokes were cracked about them being our sponsor, huh? Hmm. More about the implausibility of, of them sponsoring us, I think, is the, <laughs> the concept here. Uh, Tristan, do you want to cast our deciding vote, vote here as we are tied 1-1, as we often have been in this search? I, I'm going to say I think that these are the two best chickens in Seattle. Whoa. Wow. I, I think that this semifinal is truly the final, right? This is... Uh, That's interesting because I, I kind of feel the opposite way. I feel like... Wow. I mean, I love Heaven Sent, but I feel like there is a tier of three that are a cut above to me, and it's ST Hooligans, Quick Pack Food Mart, and Cookies. We'll, so. we'll really see, and I think that's what makes Heaven Sent a, a difficult vote here, is that Quick Pack Food Mart does a very, very similar chicken to Heaven Sent, in that you talked about that crunchiness, right, and the greasiness and the flavor, and Quick Pack does it just perfectly. Quick Pack can do it where they can pair the juiciness of cookies with the flavor and the crunch and the grease of heaven sent and heaven sent the consistency for me is just not quite there. If we were including, it's funny because like the entire atmosphere, the cookies atmosphere being within the, the trophy pizza, you know, it's a little tough because there's game day stuff that you have to factor in. I'm not sure if that's the case when you look at the whole package and you have the spicy strips at heaven sent all of a sudden now we're really talking, but well, that's the spicy strips or a factor here. I mean, you, you can feel free to judge on them if you want. But we're judging fried chicken, and spicy strips are not fried chicken, as has been established by this search. We are really talking about chicken thigh versus chicken thigh here. Chicken breast, fine, leg, wing, whatever. It needs to have bones in the chicken. I believe we have, we have stricken strips from the record. I don't know if of, we've stricken it from the record. <laughs> of Seattle's best fried chicken, and... When I think about Heaven Sent Fried Chicken, it is the almost perfect version of a like fast food style fried chicken, but it's still a fast food style fried chicken. It is, it is phenomenal. Again, I think this is the second best fried chicken in Seattle, but what Cookies is doing, there is another level. There's another gear to what they're doing. And I, I, 
pray that you have a perfect chicken thigh from cookies, Randy, because it'll be a truly special moment when it happens. And I've had that moment biting into a cookies chicken thigh where it 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 made chicken make sense, right? <laughs> like the the entire picture of why we care about fried chicken made sense when biting into that chicken thigh from cookies. And it's not an experience I've had anywhere else. And the Pelton brothers really, we have been voting hard on cookies so far. We've been a voting block throughout this. I would say Chris, Chris was coalition. To us a couple of times. I think we've agreed pretty much every round. Is that right? <laughs> we, we have, yes. And I, I have to give the first slot in the search for the Pelton cast search for Seattle's best fried chicken to cookies, country chicken. Well, there you go. <sighs> a difficult, a, a hard fought decision. I would say is it should be by the time you get to the semi. Like we just invite people on for us to disagree with. Them. <laughs> We're just like, Welcome. You wanna... And your chicken takes are garbage. <laughs> <laughs> You want to travel all throughout Western Washington, right? You want to go to Lake City, Pioneer Square. They might not be open. Seabrook, if you can make it. And then also we're going to tell you that your chicken takes are bad. <laughs> well, we're definitely not going to tell Randy that his Kraken takes are bad. Should we talk Hello. quickly about the uh, the second week of Kraken hockey, which is... Uh, it has, has not been a successful week. Well, Thursday, things were looking good. You had the back-to-back wins at home in the second and third home games at Climate Pledge Arena by a combined 9-2 margin. It's like, okay, cracking onto something now that they're back home, uh, but then losing both ends of the back-to-back. Not surprising that they lost Tuesday night into Edmonton, especially with uh, Joey Decord back in goal, giving uh, Philip Grubauer a night off. But the, the loss to the Rangers at home on, on Sunday seemed a little more disappointing. Am I, am I correct there, Randy? I think absolutely. It was, um, yeah, week two, you know, I think everyone thought we'd do a, do a good job at home. And I, I always like to point out that first game on Saturday was basically a road game for the Kraken. The inaugural game against the Canucks was a road game. It was their first time in that arena, just like it was their first time at every other arena. Um, and honestly, like a lot of those players had been to the other five places they went on their road trip beforehand. But they're, you know, they didn't even know where to park on Saturday. <laughs> they didn't know how to get around. Um, their first skate there was the morning of. So I think, you know, I, I believe they'd find their, find their groove by that second, third um, home game, which they did, right? Like the Tuesday game against Montreal, raising the, the 1917 Seattle Metropolitan's banner and just coming out, just swinging. It was, it was a great night. And yeah, Thursday against the Wild um, yeah, they looked good. They, they looked comfortable. They were putting it together. There was definitely that moment on Sunday against the, the Rangers where we, I think what we are on a power play in the third period down a goal. It was sort of like if against a pretty good team in New York, it was like, if, if, if we've got the stuff right now, this is the time to do it. And we, and we fell short. So, um, I think I'm, you know, I'm not sounding the alarm at all. I th- I'm, you know, I think it all come together. Chris Drieger, uh, the number two goalie, back off of injured reserve today. Uh, Joey Decord going back down to the AHL checkers. So uh, hopefully not as exposed in net when uh, Grubauer does need a night off. But yeah, I, I think things, things are gelling. It's actually been fun to see a lot of the D pairs come together. They're looking comfortable together. Uh, I'd say if any, the only thing I'm concerned about is our, our defensemen are doing a lot of scoring right now, which... I'm all here for that, but let's let's get the uh, the front of the pack scoring a little bit too. Uh, 
that'll make me feel good. So. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think we rethink the idea? You know, it seems like kind of 50, 50 going into the season that the Kraken could be a playoff team in their inaugural season. Have we revised that downward at all? I do not think so. I think oh, yeah. the team um, Calgary is off to a much hotter start than folks expected. I think Calgary is going to sort of come back down to earth here in the next few weeks. I think you fold that in with Seattle sort of gelling and getting their groove and um, they'll sort of bubble back up to the, the middle here in the next few weeks. Um, and honestly, right, you look at the playoff picture, folks thought that Anaheim was going to be just total hot garbage. They've also had a surprising start. So I think, you know, similar to people's takes on the Kraken, of, it's going to be hard to make an assumption about this team because we've never seen them play. I think you also have teams like Calgary and Anaheim that, you know, folks have seen in the past, but there's so many changes that everything is sort of in flux right now in the Pacific. And so I'm not sounding the alarm. I think we're, we're getting comfortable at home. We're going to get on some road trips. We've got uh, Buffalo on Thursday night, which again, I sold, I sold my tickets to that game because everyone thought Buffalo was going to be the worst team in the league. And here they are, they've got the second best record in the NHL all of a sudden. So um, should be a fun one at home that'll that'll really show a lot about what the Kraken are going to do this year. Uh, we ta- heard from Tristan about his takeaways from Climate Pledge Arena last week. You've been there several times now. What, what do you think of the new building? <laughs> I'm sort of just gesturing toward the sky. You I, I will like, say this. Maybe you were negative for a second. I was no. a little nervous. I thought that was like, I can't find the words. I can't find, when I woke up on Sunday morning, October 24th, and realized that it all wasn't a dream, that it was real, that I just went to an NHL game here in Seattle, like, that's it. Like, I I thought it was like a, it was like a hallucination, right? Beautiful building, incredible sight lines, that when we scored that first goal, it was so loud in there. Like, there was this just huge release I think everyone was so excited to score the first building, first goal in the building, not have Vancouver score it. Um, yeah, just beautiful sight lines, the sort of ease. I've never spent less time getting a, a drink or food in an arena. Even din- on that Tuesday night Montreal game, I wanted a little sweet treat in the second intermission. I just walked right into Din Tai Fung, picked up some chocolate buns, self-checked myself out, and was back in my seats in about two minutes. Like, it was just the the sort of convenience, um, the the quality of the experience, the you know everything. It was just incredible. I think even on opening night, the number one thing with me and my 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 season ticket group, which we go to a lot of NHL games in other markets. I think the number one thing was we are watching an NHL game right now, and tonight I get to sleep in my own bed. I don't have to get on a plane. I don't have to stay in a hotel. I'm gonna sleep in my own bed. And then Tuesday and Thursday, it was just walking over after work. And just going to a game and then taking the bus home. No hotels, no border crossing. It was a beautiful thing. So, yeah, as far as the, the building goes, you know, incredible sight lines. Our, our seats are sort of right behind um, the, the Kraken goaltender, uh, the double attack side um, in the sort of middle level in the third row. So we're just we kind of see all the play sort of develop coming toward us and then moving away from us. And it's just the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat or jumping in and out of my seat the entire time. Cause I'm just so sucked into the play. And um, yeah, it's just the, that stage where the performers and the singers and the, the uh, sort of celebrities have been is sort of right over my right shoulder. 
And so I think that was sort of the biggest surprise was opening night. We're just sort of there watching. And then all of a sudden the commissioner's over my shoulder doing the welcome and getting booed. And we're like, holy shit, that's crazy. Oh, maybe that was just like a one-time thing. And then here's Ann Wilson from Heart. Like I can reach out and like, we're just like bathing in her greatness. Like it was incredible. So um, yeah, I can't say not enough good things about- Not the same with Gary Bettman. Not the same with Gary Bettman. Especially- uh, Bathing in something, maybe not greatness. Exactly. Um, yeah, no. So no, I, I cannot say, especially as someone who'd spent so much time in Key Arena, um, either, you know, going to T-Birds games, going to Sonics and Storm games, working in that building in various capacities. It's just truly night and day. Um, and I, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, they did a great job. I've had, it's the 10th NHL arena that I've been to and easily the, the nicest. And it's hard, hard to not be taken unbiased with that take, but it's true. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's a little different. I get, I drive home after Blazers games, so I sleep in my own bed most of the time, but I, I totally understand the feeling. Yeah. And I, I'm uh, speaking of Kraken. So yeah, we're not, I'm, I'm don't think I'm going to another home game until November 19th. So we've got a big uh, stretch here, just friends and family going to the game, but I am going this Saturday to see the Kraken play in Arizona on their, uh, their road trip down to play the Coyotes. So it'll be fun to see them be very interested to see even in the, the you know sort of first couple weeks of the season you know normally a Seattle sports team playing in Arizona the right. crowd is about 50 50 <laughs> and I know their March they have a March game down there that's right in the middle of spring training which I'm expecting that to be like 80 percent Kraken fans so we'll see what this Saturday night in Glendale looks like but excited to to take the road with the team and and hope they'll pick up a win against a not good Coyotes team so. hapless perhaps yes all right. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, as always, Randy, we appreciate you coming on as both our cracking correspondent and our fried chicken correspondent. <laughs> Thank you. Until next time. Okay. Let's continue with our roundup of Seattle sports, starting with, I, I don't think you've prepared any hot takes for the occasion, <laughs> The occasion. But, <laughs> but the news that the Mariners have officially declined Kyle Seager's team option for the 2022 season. Thus, I mean, not not definitively, but assuredly bringing his Mariners career to an end as we knew it was going to end uh, on on the final day of the season when he got pulled to a standing ovation. And when their executive said it before the season. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, then too, when the team president was like, this will be his last year here. Yeah, they basically it's like he, he was fired, but everything he said was still true. <laughs> wow. Not everything he said was true, but yes, the things he said about the the inside the tea he spilled, I guess, would be a, would, uh, the best way to put it. Was definitely accurate. The, the people are mad about. Are you aware of this? They're mad about a uh, Joe Buck call about a Freddie Freeman homer from today. Yeah, that it might have been his last at bat as a with the Braves. The idea that you could be a Braves fan and have just won the World fucking Series and be mad at Joe Buck for any reason. It's just like, that's how you know that all of sports is made up. Like the, <laughs> the idea that people don't really know what to be excited for and what to care about. And they're already concerned while they're winning the World Series about whether Freddie Freeman will be on the team the next season. It's just like, it is a coup that the Braves won this World Series with a record that's worse than the Mariners was this year. Appreciate that it happened. Don't be concerned with what Joe Buck is saying about Freddie Freeman. 
but it's also just like the the whole thing it's basically just like all of sports is structured to give people things to complain about right oh, yes and fight about and it's i mean just like the Mariners fans are very mad online right now about how Kyle Seager was notified about this. So Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times originally reported that he was notified via email by their assistant GM, which is true, but the Mariners front office pushed, pointed out uh, in his subsequent reporting that they had tried to call him and texted him before. And it, essentially it sounded like gotten ghosted by Kyle Seager. So I was like, he well, now, now we got to tell he, him. again he was informed before the season. Like he was informed when they took him out of the game early and everybody cheered. <laughs> I mean, yes. Right. This is all Mar- true. Mariners fans informed Kyle Seeger of what the deal was at that time. But it really is just like, it, it's all structured to just get mad about something. Every announcer, there should be no such thing as a fan friendly announcer. Every announcer should just be trying to antagonize the crowd as much as possible. Oh, this like, is an interesting take. But that's really what you want, right? Joe Buck is trending on Twitter because I do not think Joe Buck wants to trend on Twitter. I'm not saying that Joe Buck wants to trend on Twitter. I'm saying that Major League Baseball wants Joe Buck to trend on Twitter. I'm saying that the sport, the Braves probably want Joe Buck. Maybe they don't. But like, that's the point is that people are just looking for things to complain about and fight about right? The Braves winning the World Series isn't about the Braves winning the World Series. It's about how everybody else responds to the Braves winning the World Series. Yep. All right. Would you want to be mad online about the, uh, on, on a podcast about the Sounders drawing 1-1 with the LA Galaxy on Monday? People were, people were annoyed about this too, I guess. Are they? I mean, it was a frustrating draw without question because the Sounders had so many chances, so much of the possession in the final 25 to 30 minutes of this match, but couldn't find the go-ahead goal uh, in a game where they got Nico Ladero and Raul Ruiz both back from injury in the starting 11. A Chicharito goal in the 20th minute gave the Galaxy the early lead. Ruiz equalized at a Panenka penalty won by Christian Roldan in the 51st minute. Then uh, nine minutes later, hobbled off. Looking like he was in some pain on the uh, the groin that it's previously sidelined him, but that did make for an exciting moment because replacing Rui Diaz in the lineup in his first appearance since carrying his ACL on February 20th is part of his loan to uh, to now I'm now I'm forgetting where he was Southampton Southampton yeah uh, Jordan Morris making his return to the Sounders lineup which was thrilling. Uh, you were at this game. What, what were your takeaways from being in attendance? Uh, the Sounders did not score a second goal. <laughs> wow. Thanks for your analysis. It's just like, what, that's the, like, how are you going to be mad on? They didn't score. Like, what, what is there to be? Who are you there's mad no, at? There's no one to be mad at. People I, are just I, mad. There, there was a bit of an aggressive play with uh, Bond, the Galaxy goalie that happened between him and Rui Diaz that could have potentially been called... Uh, a penalty, but it, I don't think it quite got to Matt online levels. I mean, I can understand that the galaxy are sort of, you know, the, one of the Sounders foils, but I don't think the Sounders were wronged in this game. In the second half, they were probably the better team and had a lot of very, very close chances. But the thing about soccer is sometimes the ball doesn't go in. That is the thing about soccer. So an important result for the Sorry Sounders. for being so level-headed about this. <laughs> yeah, I was again. I was looking for a little something different. I'm just like watching Chicharito. I'm just like, he's a very skilled footballer. 
<laughs> like I'm, I'm impressed with some of these moves that he has. <laughs> like I don't. Uh, for the moment, the Sounders lead the Western Conference by one point over both Sporting Kansas City and Colorado Rapids. But Kansas City plays at Austin FC Wednesday night before all three teams among all the teams in the league are in action simultaneously during Sunday's decision day. Sounders will be at Vancouver, another team battling for playoff position like the Galaxy, while Kansas City hosts Real Salt Lake and Colorado hosts LAFC. Sounders could still finish anywhere from first to third, most likely outcome according to the 538 Soccer Power Index is second with a 56% chance of that, a 24% chance at first, and a 20% chance of third. Uh, If they win on Sunday, it would assure them no worse than second. If Austin if Austin, I should say, if Sporting Kansas City draws one of the final two matches, the goal differential tiebreaker could come into play in that scenario. Sporting Kansas City currently plus 21 on the season, Sounders plus 20. So it might be important for the Sounders to not only win on Sunday, but win by as now, many goals as possible. What is, I, see, I heard that the first tiebreaker was go- goals four. No, I think that's the second tiebreaker. I think goal differential uh, is the first tiebreaker. Okay. Are you sure about that? That, I, I mean, I looked at the MLS uh, standings page yesterday, and that's how I remember it reading. I think maybe previously the Sounders did have a better goal differential than Sporting KC, and maybe that's where that tiebreaker flipped. Yeah, goal differential, then goals for, then fewest disciplinary points. <laughs> I have no idea who wins that particular tiebreaker. The yellow Sporting- card that they gave Bond just from midfield. That's my favorite yellow card. <laughs> that refs give where they're just standing at midfield and hold it up across half, half the field, just for the goalie fucking off down there. Like, I mean, that was a pretty aggressive bit of time wasting there by Bond. I would say I, I just love it from so far away. The ref just being like, yeah, it's a yellow. Come on, kick the damn ball. I mean, it would be even more wasting time if you ran over there to show him the card. Yes. Uh, a better outcome in their season finale for OL Reign, which got a 3-0 win Saturday at the newly named Kansas City Current. Uh, got, the Reign got an own goal in the first half and then two from Eugenie Le Sommer in the second half to secure second place in the NWSL standings in a bye to the semifinals. Uh, the Reign will host a match on November 14th in the semifinals versus the winner of the Washington Spirit North Carolina Courage matchup this weekend. So we'll have a full preview of that next week on the pod. What was the Kansas City team named beforehand? They were just going by Kansas City, basically. I like that better. Well, so they're, the new, they, they also announced plans for the first NWSL soccer-specific stadium. Uh, which will be, I think it's a planned 5,000 seat stadium along the waterfront on the Missouri side. And because of the fact that it's along the river, that's part of the the Kansas city Mm. current. Uh, It's a a thinker. It's also in Kansas city. (laughs) Well, Kansas city has been a foil. It's the foil for this. I hate that Kansas city current, right? (laughs) We hate them. (laughs) <laughs> no actually one one of my good friends works for the kansas city current oh really so we're, all right big, well, we're, big, if it's not going to be seattle red definitely or ol red i should say definitely the kansas city you current. just tell me what my rooting interests are <laughs> i will i'll text you and let you know <laughs> what your rooting interests are. 
I never get these texts. I think you've given me like one all year. People, people on Twitter are more likely to inform me about sporting events than you are. Well, one sporting event that the people Hello. on Twitter informed us about was UW soccer on Thursday playing Cal in the aforementioned downpour that took place all day long. And like there, I, I flipped over to this briefly on the Pac-12 network, and there was like legitimately pools of water on the pitch. And it's Can like you give yeah, shouts gonna... to who that who that was who informed us about this. Can you find that tweet? <laughs> Uh, yes, I will. I will go go find that. That was uh, that was Grant Wojan. It looks like was uh, at Grant Wojan was the the person who tweeted us, uh, and eventually bowing to these conditions as opposed to just telling the teams, hey, hey kind of play away from the small lake on the pitch here. Uh, the game was called in the 61st minute due to weather, with the teams tied one one. So officially a no contest. Wow, you can do that. You, you can do that, apparently. You could do it. Uh, apparently, if you play, you ha- uh, the NCAA rules stipulate you have to play 70 minutes for it to be a full game. So it doesn't count as a full game. It does not. It's just like they didn't play at all. They couldn't have gotten through nine more wet minutes. Um, I don't know what to tell you on that one. Uh, the It was an official draw on Sunday as the Huskies were scoreless against Stanford, nil-nil. Uh, for the full 90 plus apparently in college i'm learning lots of new things about college soccer <laughs> you play two 10 minute golden goal overtime periods and there was no score in either of those either so that was uh, the first draw of the season for the huskies to go along with their first loss the previous weekend after the 11 and 0 start and uh, their first no decision yes Utah men's soccer travels to face ucla and san diego state next weekend so they're now 12 11. One, one, and one. I, I mean, they don't put that in the in the record. They're 11, one, and one. 11, one, one, and one. <laughs> you got to stop adding ones here. For the no decision. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They are, they are 12, one, and one. You are correct. There we go. That. Wow, I just made up a number. <laughs> <laughs> they had started 12, no, not 11. No, I got that one. 12, one, one, and one. First ever time in uh, Pac-12 men's soccer history. That record has ever happened. Thank you. It's unclear how many overtime wins they have and how many points <laughs> they get for those. Uh, so where are they currently ranked, UW Soccer? They were number four entering last weekend. I don't know if they've dropped at all this week, given that draw. Although they've still got them listed as number two on the website here. I'm also not totally sure where to find men's soccer rankings. I'll have to, I'll have to dig into that. It's not the, the, there's no AP top 25 PCS men's soccer rankings. No, there's no college football playoff rankings. They, they didn't announce those on ESPN today. <laughs> no, no, they did not. <laughs> well, a team that's beginning to play this week as we ramp up even more sports, UW men's basketball. Wow. On Thursday, we'll host Central Washington in an exhibition. And then Tuesday, opening day of the NCAA uh, basketball season, we'll host Northern Illinois. The Huskies enter this year number 102 in the Ken Palm projections, which is last in the Pac-12. Definitely an easy landing in the early schedule. They'll face, they'll start off with uh, two teams ranked outside the Ken Palm top 300 including northern illinois which is at number 324 entering the season so if they don't win one of these two games they are in very very dire feels like two l's to me oh no 
Uh, obviously, that's not Central Washington, who's not ranked as a non-Division One team. Uh, I thought we'd remind you, and by you, I mean both the listener and you specifically, Tristan, who's on the roster for <laughs> UW men's basketball and where they transferred from. Okay. So at point guard, we've got Dejon Davis back from Stanford. Finally, yep. like Jalen Noel has been in the NBA for three seasons as part of the same recruiting class, but Dejon Davis has finally made it to UW. Uh, I, my assumption is that they will probably start both him and Terrell Brown Jr., who can both play point guard. They'll probably, one of them will be on the court most of the time, but uh, you know, Terrell Brown Jr., another Seattle native, who played at Seattle U before spending last year at Arizona. So this is his third college. Uh, uh, backing up in the backcourt, we've got Dominic Penn, who, who signed with the team midseason last year, but I don't believe saw any action that I recall, certainly not any meaningful minutes. Uh, PJ Fuller, another transfer, another Seattle signed native. with the team midseason? <laughs> like he was a free agent? <laughs> Well, like he graduated early at, at the quarter break and then joined the Huskies for the join UW for the second half of the season. Okay. Which happened on the women's side as well. Uh, PJ Fuller, another Seattle native who's transferred back. He was at TCU originally. You remember that he played at Nathan Hale for Brandon Roy, also played at Garfield. Uh, small forward, you've got Jamal Bay, I think is the. the he's the veteran of the team at this point, the most established player who is returning from last year's roster backed up by Cole Bajima, who's also back from last year and Samuel Ariyibi, who is an incoming recruit out of the NBA Africa Academy at power forward. You've got West Virginia transfer Emmett Matthews, who I, I believe is from Tacoma and then Langston Wilson, who's a JC transfer, a really interesting story that we talked about when he signed with the team, was unable to play basketball in high school because of concern about a heart condition, but was later cleared to uh, begin playing and uh, is extremely athletic. And I think like six foot nine, going to be an exciting player to watch. How good he's going to be at the Division One level is, is tough to say. Uh, then at center, you've got Nate Roberts as kind of the other key returning player from last year's team, along with Jamal Bay. You got Riley Soren back, and then Jackson Grant. I think probably slots in more as a center this year as UW's biggest recruit out of out of the Olympia area, uh, and, and definitely you know one of the 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 best local get I guess for Mike Hopkins probably since he kept Jalen Noel around, and should be expecting to have some playing time here or. Yeah, I think so. I think he's good enough to to probably play at least to some extent right away. So this team, if you take them in a vacuum, a lot of these players are very talented coming out of high school, right? Before they went off and went to their first college, went, got experience somewhere for whatever reason or another, you know, there's the 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 sort of like transfer portal machine that happens every year of shuffling. There was COVID. Players are moving around a lot right now. I feel like the talent that is there, just raw talent without ever having really played together is better than the worst team in the Pac-12. Am I wrong about this? I mean, I think it's probably the lack of like high-end talent that is the biggest question mark about this team. Like who's going to be the guy you're going to go to to really create offense? I don't know who that player is going to be on this roster. But there's definitely experience. There is definitely experience. That's a, a change from years past. It's not experience here or experience together, 
but there is experience. Yes. Is there any reason to have hope about this UW basketball team? I mean, I think you've got better guard play than you've had in years past with that Davis Terrell Brown combination, especially if Dijon Davis plays more like, you know, I think his sophomore year was maybe his most promising year at Stanford and that his, his junior and his original senior seasons were a little less impressive by the standards he set early on dealt with some injuries last year. That was, that was certainly a factor in it. So like if those guys play particularly well, if you've got this really good guard play and then just enough size and length in the interior to be effective playing his own defense, then that's, I think the combination that makes you competitive in pac 12 games. Can anybody on the team shoot? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I think it'll be a better shooting team than last year, probably. All right. So I think this is all reason for hope. That's hope is a dangerous thing. If you know, Ben's <laughs> basketball, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. They've had in, in again, in true to you fashion, just a smidgen of credit. The smallest oh. bit of credit you can get. No, I feel like they've overachieved in many of Mike Hopkins seasons. It was really just one very bad season last year, right? Uh, I think the season before was a, a pretty dramatic disappointment. I guess in Terrell Brown's case, by the way, you're really counting on him to maintain. He shot 37% from three last year. He was previously 30% in his two years at Seattle. This is also his fourth school because he spent a year at Shoreline Community College after coming out of Garfield. Haven't we all? No, most of us, most of us on the spot went to Highline. <laughs> Very clear about that. Shouts to Brian Scalabrini. Oh, HCC legend. Shouts to Quincy Wilder also. Hmm. Let's talk about UW football. We talked about it at the top, the thrilling 23 win, 13, 20 to 13 win on Saturday at Stanford, a game they trailed 13, 12, had four field goals entering the all or nothing final drive where they moved it into Stanford territory. And then I believe from the 26 on third and on third and two call a, uh, not a run play, but a pass play to the end zone and Dylan Morris finds Jalen McMillan for the winning touchdown. And then they cap it off with an awesome two point conversion call. Oh my God. To get, to Where Giles, was that play? Yeah. To get Giles Jackson free on the edge for the two point conversion, which was useful in that spot. But yes, maybe really, you saved that a little two point conversion didn't really matter that much. Like Stanford with the 28 seconds or whatever, and no timeouts was not scoring against this UW defense. Well, they were not the scoring. kickoff return was a little troubling. But they were not scoring a touchdown. You knew that that was not coming. And they saved. This is like, this was not Chris Peterson saving his best plays of the year for the Fiesta Bowl. <laughs> this was John Donovan saving his best plays of the year for the two-point conversion to go up seven, which I think was also the same thing that, or no, that was to win the Fiesta Bowl, Ian Johnson, right? Yeah, Kellen Moore, future UW head coach Kellen Moore to Ian Johnson in the Fiesta Bowl. That was for the W. For this one, it was just like, well, we need to get to seven. So we'll just (laughs) unveil the best play of the entire season. I don't know what to tell you, Chief. Don't know what to tell you. It's lingering. It there is something there. I am telling you, there is more, there is more lingering underneath this UW offense than we have seen publicly. I would agree with that. 
I mean, we've talked about this in the past. There's stretches where they look like they know what they're doing offensively, and it's just the inability to maintain them. In this case, it was mostly the inability to maintain them in the red zone. They moved the ball you know, reasonably consistently much of the night. Rushing offense, best game of the year by far. We talked about the Stanford run defense was the worst in the Pac-12, but the Huskies beat the per carry average that Stanford had given up to opponents over the course of the season. Sean McGrew over 100 yards. Cameron Davis, who got the backup role ahead of Kamari Pleasant in this one, nearly got to 100 as well on 18 carries. So really impressive work here by those guys in UW's offensive line, which looked as, as good as it has all season. On the other side, the Huskies stalled Stanford to 4.5 yards per play, the fewest the Cardinal have managed since Tanner McKee took over as starting quarterback and forced three turnovers, including an interception on the final, on the final offensive play for Stanford on that desperation drive. Uh, the UW passing attack, uh, kind of toothless much of the night, but came alive on the key drives at the end of the first half when they came up with a field goal, uh, one of those four field goals from Peyton Henry, and then the winning drive, Jalen McMillan leading the way with six catches for 84 yards as Terrell Bynum got shut out after his big week at Arizona. So Huskies at four and four, they really needed this one to uh, feel good about their chances of getting to six wins now. You know, I think you're probably going to be favored in two of the remaining four games and can be competitive in the next two here against Oregon and Arizona State, even if the most likely outcome is still that they're four and six heading into those final two weeks and needing to win both of those to get to a bowl. Now, we're, we're, what is our barometer here on after this game? And I hate that this is a thing we have to do weekly on Dylan Morris in that performance. It wasn't a great performance overall, but I, I, what I come back to is, you know, if you threw Sam Heward out there without any experience on the road and that's and not granted, not a hostile crowd at Stanford stadium, <laughs> that's not a big factor in why the Huskies have struggled there for whatever reason, uh, in that situation where they need to score, are you feeling really great about having him in that situation? I feel like Dylan Morris who has led some, led some game winning drives last year, is, is a better bet in that situation. I think I agree with that. I, I would, and look, UW didn't run the ball poorly in this game. They run the, ran the ball fairly well. It just didn't necessarily translate to points. I think that there has to still be more dynamic of an offense than just we're going to run or we need to pass now, right? Like that's, that's when offense starts breaking down is we're going to run until we absolutely cannot run and then we'll pass and it feels yep. like that was the offense for about 59 minutes this game <laughs> not not quite 50 minutes nine minutes because there was that drive at the end of the first half where they really got like the slant game going to mcmillan but the way that you run a good offense is by obviously taking advantages taking advantage of your opponent's weaknesses which is what they did in this game and that's why they ran the ball so well which is they saw that Stanford was not a good team defending the run so they ran and i'm not necessarily against that as an idea if you're averaging five and a half six yards a carry it's fine to run the ball but exactly. there's still if you're going to score touchdowns and you're going to score more than you know they still had 12 points heading into this drive, despite the fact that they averaged those five and a half, six yards per carry. And that is a failure of offense being at 12 points heading into the last drive. 20 overall is still not like an offensive explosion for what they did. And the reason that they were there 
is because the offense wasn't dynamic enough. And by that, I mean that they're not, they weren't mixing up the tempo motion passed off, like passing on likely running downs and vice versa. You know, if you want to do the stupid person way to look at football, you just add up the yards per carry. You could pass on first down, have an incomplete pass at five and a half yards per carry, get a first down on second and third down. I mean, I think part of it was they looked at it as, you know, in addition to how well the run game was going, the defense was playing well enough that this wasn't a game where they needed to score 30 points. Now that's going to be a different approach this Saturday. They're going that to, need to that. me is the worst way to approach a game though. Every single game, this is a Pete Carroll thing. Pete Carroll goes into every single game, assuming that it's going to be a field position battle or a field goal battle or whatever. And he's comfortable with that. The best way to win a game is to win a game by 30 points. As we saw on Sunday with Pete Carroll. Just because you don't, you always need to score the most points. There's no one game where you can look at it and be like, well, this one, we don't need points. Points are always a good thing. And there's no justifying it. Well, the defense is playing well. Therefore, we shouldn't try to score more. You know what the defense would fucking love is the offense scoring more points. <laughs> I, w- I will say, though, I, 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 I think that Dylan Morris needs to be put into better situations. I don't know if just raw talent wise, like he might be the next Jake Hayner, you know, like if inevitably when Dylan Morris is not on this UW football team next year, I'm going to Kyle Seeger, just let him know he's not going to be on the team because you know what's coming. You know, what's coming here. Sam Heward's still waiting there. He can, he can choose whether to stay on the team or not. They don't have a team option that they can turn down. I mean, you know, sadly there are players that get run off, but I don't, they're certainly not going to do that with Dylan Morris. They would gladly let Dylan Morris be the backup quarterback, but he would be thrilled. I'm sure they would, but it's not going to happen. He's going to be the quarterback at Fresno state next year. The, they need to, they, Dylan Morris is a better player than the position he's being put in. And because of that, when you only let a quarterback pass in obvious passing situations, they're going to look worse. Uh, and th- there's throws that Dylan Morris can make. You talk about the slant routes that he made. Why is that not happening more? It's something that going forward is going to have to happen more often. And mixing it up between a run and a pass is going to have to happen more often. And when they let it fly on that last play of the game, Dylan Morris with a perfect throw, the the play that they had with Giles Jackson, there's going to need to be more of that because if you're just running the ball up the middle, it's going to be obvious to a defense that Giles Jackson play that can be in the playbook against Oregon. I hate to break it to you. We should mention, by the way, on that final pass, like, you couldn't tell that Jalen McMillan was going to be in the end zone. We both thought when we saw Dylan Morris throw that up that he was just throwing it out of bounds to like one clock basically, but not so much clock is if they had run, you know, on in unsuccessfully on third and two and been forced to sprint the field goal unit on the, onto the field to, you know, kick the, the go ahead field goal. And then all of a sudden there's a receiver there and it's a touchdown and you don't have to worry about the potential of missing a field goal. A beautiful thing. You love it. It was great to see. And also, by the way, a big play by Dylan Morris on the previous play to read and keep the ball on a read option and pick up, I think, seven yards uh, and get the ball in the middle of the field to a point where they were comfortable throwing it. Two consecutive camera work plays that were not great (laughs) in a row. (laughs) I mean, I, I, 
I think they played the replay of this. Either I can't remember if it was that or that Tony Kestrikon specifically mentioned it on the post-game show. He said he was fooled too. So it wasn't just the camera. Look at Dylan Morris. He's fooling everybody. <laughs> yeah, let's the, talk about... But no, I also want to say this defense is looking very good. And it's it's always been very good. Like people have just been so worried about the run defense. And like run defense just isn't that important. The run defense also is very good in this game though. Keeping, well, keeping Carson, anybody... T- Carson Bruner was quite good at middle linebacker filling on in for Itifuan Yulifoshio is out for the season. And that's a hugely promising sign. And Tanner McKee had been one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 heading into this game. Yeah. And, and they, for all intents and purposes, really shut down Tanner McKee. I mean, being at 21 for 32 for 194 yards with two picks, like it's not, it's a very bad performance. The secondary looks good. I mean, EPA per play for Pac-12 teams, the next, the, you know, second best is Arizona State at minus 0.11 expected points added per play. UW's at minus 0.26. I mean, I'll give it to Jimmy. He is, he is good at coaching defense. The secondary is so good. It just, they, they have to be able to pair the two, but the secondary looks phenomenal. These are NFL caliber players that they have in the secondary. If you could pair these two things, there is a good UW team lurking underneath here. I mean, they were ranked in the top 25 to begin the season. Like this is not a team that's devoid of talent. They just got put into such bad positions and with a little bit of bad luck along the way. But again, the referees were bad. The play calling for much of the game was questionable. They still went into Stanford and beat Stanford for the first time since 2013. Was that the year? No, 2007, 2013. I was in college the last time that they went to Stanford and that's not not true on the farm. That is not, that is not accurate. You graduated in 2007, but don't correct me on the point. I graduated in 2007. Therefore I was in college in 2007 when they beat Stanford. I don't know when you think graduation is relative to the college football season, but that's, that's not true. But the Sonics were still in Seattle. The last time the Huskies won at Stanford. Wow. That is how this was before the Sonics had to play at the mod pizza at the armory. (laughs) Uh, well, speaking of the green and gold, should we talk about Oregon? Maybe let's not call them that. I think it's more green and white, silver. Yeah, it's a variety of different Yellow, colors. It is It is gold. the worst thing about the Sonics color scheme is that it also happens to be Oregon's oh, color scheme. There's this, it, it's much more yellow it's, and silver. It's very similar. Uh, Oregon comes in 7-1 and one and ranked number 4 in the season's first college football playoff rankings. But aside from a 35-28 win at Ohio State, the Ducks' resume is actually pretty shaky. Their lone two wins by more than a touchdown this season have come against the Pac-12's two worst teams, Arizona and Colorado, granting that UW failed to beat Arizona by more than a touchdown. And they failed to do what the Huskies did last Saturday, win at Stanford, there their one loss. So the Ducks are just 16th in ESPN's football power index efficiency rating. Uh, A lot of attention on the loss of running back C.J. Rudell to a season-ending leg injury against Stanford, but the rushing attack hasn't really skipped a beat since then. Travis Dye has been the Ducks' most effective running back, also a big play threat out of the backfield, leading the team with 24 receptions, second in receiving yards. I think there's two ways to look at Oregon's receiving group. They have lots of depth or no one standout is there's no receiver with more than 290 yards, which despite their difficulties at times and injuries, 
uh, in the receiver group. The Huskies have two receivers over 290 yards this season. Part of that, definitely the emphasis on the run with Boston College transfer Anthony Brown starting at quarterback. He's thrown 30-plus passes in just three of his eight games as compared to five times for Dylan Morris. Brown has been efficient, averaging eight yards per attempt with just three interceptions and is a legit run threat, ranking third among Pac-12 Terrifying. quarterbacks Terrifying in rushing quarterback. EPA. Yeah, it's not maybe the best match for this UW defense. Uh, the Oregon defense, fourth best in the Pac-12 via FBI efficiency, a bit more vulnerable against the pass where they rank about average. Their run defense, second best in the Pac-12 behind Arizona, showing how important run defense is. He's, the, Arizona, he's Arizona's winless. It's interesting because Oregon on offense, what they can do with Anthony Brown running, just watching a handful of Oregon games this season, it is. It feels impossible to stop. I think this UW defense, with the way that they've put, been playing, especially as of late, you know, DTR he ran a little bit wild against them. I think he's a better passer than Anthony Brown is, uh, and Anthony Brown is a little bit scarier of a runner, possibly. With the way that Carson Bruner played last week, uh, who is the other young D- player? DTR is one of those two quarterbacks that's ahead of him in rushing EPA, by the way. Also terrifying quarterback. And but third third overall in, in QBR in the Pac-12, Brown's fifth. Uh, who was the other young linebacker who played well in that game, though? Uh, I can't remember who else was playing at, at inside linebacker. I got to see this. They rotated a little bit. There was Lolo Hea got Cooper, some Cooper McDonald is who I'm talking well, about. I mean, he's been playing all year. I don't consider him a young linebacker, but he's an outside linebacker with the way, with the way that these linebackers are playing the way that the secondary can tackle and close in on these plays. I, I think this one, you know, you look at that FPI percentage chance. It's I, 37. This is, this is not a college football playoff team. Like they, I don't, they're not as good as that ranking would suggest. I mean, we saw them lose to a stand to the Stanford team, which is the middle of the pack in the pack 12. I understand it's the way that the Pac-12 works is that anybody who has aspirations of being in the playoff has to lose one or two games to some average Pac-12 teams. <laughs> Why can't we be that average Pac-12 team? I think we were a couple of years ago. Uh, oh, no, the no, average no, Pac-12 the, team the to beat somebody. Yes. <laughs> Look, we've been the average Pac-12 team on the other side. We were not an average Pac-12 team in 2016. That is disrespectful to Jake Browning and John Rods. The man, Dante Pettis, too. I'm telling you, that team it was loaded. It was, was Buddha, it, Buddha still on that team. <clears throat> well, I, I know the next season was you look at like Byron Murphy, Trey Adams, players like that. Man, it was Taylor Rapp. Apparently, like, Miles, if, according to uh, Mina, Miles Bryant flashed in the Patriots game on Sunday. Oh, yeah. But I think this is a team that if the UW defense can show up in a similar way that they did at Stanford, you know, you can't expect Carson Bruner as a freshman to play as well against the Oregon offense as he did against Stanford, but they could get anything from that position in kind of limiting Anthony Brown, forcing him to pass. Yeah. I mean, that's what you want to do is try to get this Oregon team in third and long situations. That is not where they want to be. They don't have, you know, the wide receivers to win one-on-one against this UW secondary. And that's, I think, going to be the game within the game is how often can you force them into third and long, or is it a lot, you know, a steady stream of both picky up first downs early 
or it's third and two, third and three, where Brown's run threat is more of a factor. And and then you look at the, I mean, again, to me, the way that this UW defense is still set up is it's still a Pete Carroll style defense to a certain extent, right? They're better. The talent that they have is much better than any Pete Carroll team since the Legion of Boom. But they want, they're, they're okay with the idea of giving up first downs. It really is about if you want to run and you want to work to get a first down after first down after first down, do that because there's going to be mistakes eventually. And <clears throat> each drive, it takes one holding call to get you off schedule, so to say, right? Like, I, I think this UW defense is good enough to hold Oregon's offense to under 24 points, something like that. And the real question to me is not about the UW defense against Oregon. It is, you look at that number two ranked run defense in the Pac-12, and you think about how are Jimmy and John going to approach this game? Because it's going to be different than many of the games that they've played all season. They can't go into it saying, we're going to run the damn ball against Oregon. They're going to need to score points in this game. And they're going to have to be doing a little bit more of what they were doing on those last two plays of the game that they ran <laughs> offensive plays than they did for the previous 59 minutes. If we can extrapolate the EPA on those last two plays over a full game, Huskies are in great shape. You run one play. Like, I mean, I, we were talking about this. Stanford, and, and you made the argument that being in the box is not necessarily a good defensive strategy, but like they were doing everything to stop the run. UW hits two passes, two slants like that, and all of a sudden the Stanford defense changes. It, it's not necessarily that hard to do. You just have to have the faith that Dylan Morris can do it, and you have to hit teams with plays when they're not expecting them. God forbid, could we pass the ball on first down every once in a while? Could we hit a play action? One time you run a play similar to Giles Jackson coming on an end around. You know it's in the playbook. That's the thing. Like, there is more to this John Donovan playbook than meets the eye. Oh, I, I would love someone to post a copy of, of uh, a John Donovan playbook online. That would be quite outstanding. <laughs> a, wait, someone did that, actually. Wait, it was the Tech Mobile, right? <laughs> Yeah, the, someone did do that. They, I'm remembering that happened against the Michigan. But but that's the thing. It's like there is they they know about pre-snap motion. They know about at the snap motion. It has happened. It's just why can't it happen consistently? And I, this is but, this is a but, question for all football in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, enough about it. you saw the stat about yeah. the Seahawks being at the bottom in terms of motion. Oh, it and like we had that glorious sense. game against the Colts, and then just like it's gone now. There was, and really the Colts is the best win that they have right now. Oh, we'll, we're going to get into that in a second. Oh, here. really? Hello. Uh, percentage chances of victory. I'm feeling weirdly good about this one. I'm going to go, I'm going to go 44%. 44%. Wow. Uh, I'm at like 25%. I just like, I know what the numbers say, but it's UW in Oregon. I've seen this movie before and it ends with us dejectedly walking out of Husky stadium for in my case, a third time this season. Thousand and seven. The last time that a UW team, I am just ready to graduate from college, right? <laughs> Can't wait to graduate from college. A young buck. That is the last time that UW beat Stanford in Stanford, went into Palo Alto. 
saying things things might be a little bit different here. If they beat Stanford and Oregon back to back, I'll rescind everything that I've said about Jimmy and John Donovan. I'm just saying I was covering Oregon's Luke Ridenour at the last time the Huskies beat, beat Stanford. I guess I was No, you were not covering. Oh, it, oh, the Sonics, not when he was at Oregon. Oh, no, no, say. not at That was 2003. I was graduating high school when Luke Ridenour yes. came to the NBA. Well, no one do the math again on when Tristan graduated high school and when he thinks he graduated college. Uh, I graduated high school you. and then Luke Ridenour was drafted like a month later. Well, probably like a few days later, but yes. That is correct. Uh, did I say my chances of victory? Because it's like 25. You did say. Yeah, okay. you had to say that again. Uh, I just couldn't remember if I had said it or not. Well, should we talk about the Seahawks heading into the bye week? Coming off of Sunday's 31-7 win over the Jacksonville Jaguars, you were wondering... Well, you- there's one more college thing we need to get to. Oh, you're right. You're right. I, I skipped over. My bad. My bad. The Jake Hayner update. There we go. Jake Hayner was 25 of 42 for 306 yards and a touchdown in Saturday's 30-20 to 20 win over number 21 San Diego State. The Bulldogs moved into the Rashad AP Penny, poll San Diego State. at number 25 and are... I think both of these teams were actually ranked in the college football playoff rankings. They're slightly higher than 25th in this college Said football playoff. Fresno State was? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. They're like the college 23rd. football playoff rankings. Love them some hater. <laughs> we're going to go into bowl season or whatever. And it's like the team that I'm going to be cheering for the most is Fresno State. <laughs> Next year, they'll make it back to back. They'll be in the college football playoff with Dylan Morris at quarterback. I mean, we'll see if UW is even in full season. They've still got some work to do to get there. Yes, no, no, no. I'm not day. saying that UW will be. I'm saying next year, Fresno State. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I get that. I'm just saying it might be obvious that Fresno State is the team you're rooting oh. for the most. <laughs> it's surprising if you're pulling for them over UW. Okay. If UW's not in it, that's unsurprising. It's obvious that now Fresno State is my team. Your <laughs> second team. I mean, who else is it going to be? <laughs> We've always loved Jeff Tedford. Oh, I mean, not untrue. Okay, so the Husky, the Seahawks beat the Jaguars 31 to 7. You were asking afterwards, when was the last time they won a blowout? They did win one of those last year against the Jets, 41 yes. to 3. But it's not a lot of those in the late Pete Carroll era. They specialize in the oh, close oh, wins. Pete Carroll as of late. <laughs> yes. The late Pete Carroll is not, he's a very old coach. Uh, out of his whole coaching career, it is definitely the late Pete Carroll era. Uh, yeah, so it's not a thing they do a whole lot. So that was that was exciting. Then I was shocked when I went and looked this up on Football Outsiders. It was their worst game of the season by DVOA. It was kind of funny. Uh, the the reason for that is that they barely outgained the Jaguars on a per play basis, four point four to four point two as they averaged just 2.8 yards per carry and the three huge sacks he took for a combined 35 yards undid a lot of Geno Smith's 8.1 yards per pass attempt. Uh, the Jaguars have given up an average of 6.1 yards per play over the course of the season. So uh, the Seahawks managing only 4.4 was actually quite shockingly terrible by those standards. God, I love it. Yeah. I, yep. So the Colts game was far and away their best single game performance by DVOA. There, there was a little bit of an element of like the game was just so over so early. Yes, there's a game script element. Like I don't, I, this was not the worst game that they played all year. And you look at those Geno Smith numbers, and they look pretty phenomenal. Like 
you really can't can't question that. And also, you're talking about on offense. On defense, you know, holding Trevor Lawrence to what 4.4 yards per attempt. The defensive like, DVOA was about average in this one. I'm a little surprised by that. Yeah, I I'm not sure why it's quite that low. There's nothing you can look at. Like when you look at these raw numbers, there's nothing you can look at and say that the Seahawks, aside from Rashad Penny's seven carries for seven yards, I suppose. But like most of the running play was not very good, I, I guess, outside of the Alex Collins carries. But like there's really nothing you look at where you say this was very bad that they did or that the Jaguars did well and the Seahawks didn't. I think that's one of, this is one of the curiosities of DBOA type games. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, even I look, I know this from experience, even Aaron Schatz looks at the DBOA, I'm sure sometimes, and we've seen that and mentioned this and says, well, that, that surprises me, or that doesn't make sense to me. That's, that's just what happens when you're working with statistical formula. Well, you know, who else looks at the DBOA sometimes? That's Peter Clay Carroll. I mean, why are we surprised by this? He's, he knows about the DBOA championships. And especially anytime DBOA says his team is better than his record is, which the Seahawks among teams with a below 500 record have the third best DBOA in football uh, behind the, the Indianapolis Colts have the best, third record. best record as a team with an under 500 record. But they're the like, banner. <laughs> <laughs> but they are substantially higher in DBOA than they are in terms of their record at this point in the season. So of course he looks at it, is excited about it. Well, as Aaron Schatz pointed out, they went down after this game uh, because of what you were talking about, that that game by Stevie just didn't like this one. No. Not a fan. <laughs> Thumbs down. <laughs> but still, they, going they were, into that they game. They were 10th entering in the week while being two and five. They were 10th, and it was clear, you know, they'd played at that point only two full games with Geno Smith as as quarterback. But I, I do think there's a bit of a dialogue that's coming from Seattle sports and food podcasts oh, that the wow. team isn't that it's a bad team outside of Russell Wilson. And I I don't know if that's exactly the case. You know, you look at this victory against the Jaguars, and you have to say to yourself, like, where is this, where is the talent on the team? They still crushed that Jaguars team. If we're I mean, looking I, at it. I think it was a reminder. There's levels to this shit. Like the Seahawks may not be that good without Russell Wilson, but there's still a competent professional football team. And the Jacksonville Jaguars under Urban Meyer are not. Yes. I mean, that was the worst loss that the Jaguars had suffered all season. And coming off of a bye, coming off of their first victory, you know, this is a team that lost to the Bengals by three points on the road. So, I mean, you know, Geno Smith's performance at this point, he's been a league average quarterback by, you know, pretty much whatever, you know, combination metric. He's actually been much better than that by uh, completion percentage over expected, according to Ben Baldwin's site, which is interesting because it makes me wonder if there's something about the Seahawks offense that CPOA just like is missing given that Russ always leads the league in it or is maybe second or third. It's that Geno Smith and Russ are good quarterbacks. I mean, I don't know that I think, I mean, he's like fifth in CPOA. I don't think that Geno Smith is the league's fifth best quarterback. It, it probably is that he's, they run the ball so much with Geno Smith that when he's passing, he's being put into probably like they're able to hit some of these play actions at times when teams are just like, Oh my God, 
the I mean, Seahawks I think it, passed the ball. I think it probably also was testament to the receiver group. And it was very exciting to see them throw the ball to Tyler Lockett on a repeated basis, except in the matchup that I had in the Pelton Cast League against Natalie, uh, who has Tyler Lockett. I have Tyler Lockett in my other league in the Pelton Cast, but uh, she beat me in large part because of Tyler Lockett's performance. So the, I guess the reality is when you look at the Seahawks team, you say it's not just Russell Wilson. It is Russell Wilson. It is Tyler Lockett. It is DK Metcalf. And those three players together or some combination of those three players together can equal a pretty good offense if put into a positive situation. Yeah. You know, considering that they're sitting at eighth in DVOA offensively, Russ has been out for almost as many games as he played in. It's pretty incredible stuff for those receivers in particular. And I think, you know, we need to have a dialogue about where the defense is at this point in the season. Uh, You know, given that they've held opponents in terms of points, you know, They've given the given the team a chance to win all these games. Now, the they don't rate in terms of DVO, I think, quite as good as, as they look in terms of points. They've basically been league average since week four. One above average performance since then, that coming against New Orleans in the rain on Monday night. And the other one's all very near league average. The one reason I think they look better in terms of points is since starting with the San Francisco game, opponents are converting a league low 25% of third downs, according to stathead.com, after they converted 49% the first three weeks. And that is an unsustainably low rate. The Seahawks have not been anywhere near the best defense on the first two downs. And third down is something that's subject to a lot of randomness in small samples. So that, that includes Stafford, though, right? That's yes. Okay. So that's Stafford, Ben Roethlisberger, Jameis, Trevor Lawrence. And also the Jimmy Garoppolo Trey Lance combo. Oh, okay. I thought you said since starting in week four. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean the third, which does also coincide with Ryan Neal coming into the lineup on third downs, and I think that has helped. But I don't they think didn't they... do enough of that though at various times. Like that Rams game, there was not enough Ryan Neal. No, probably not. But no defense is good enough to sustain giving up only twenty five percent of third downs. Even the Legion of Boom wasn't doing that shit. Did, I mean, uh, Kirk Cousins really roasted the Seahawks team in a, in a game that was feels like it was an eternity ago. I sure uh, does. League average defense from the Seahawks is great. Yeah, I mean, what it becomes is last year's team overall, which there was a weird split of the offense. And we talked about this last week about how the Seahawks defense is only good when the offense is bad, generally speaking, and vice versa. But if you got the team of all of last year with an average defense, the number six offense in DVOA, that was the fifth best team overall in DVOA. Like that's a very good team. Oh yeah. I mean, we should be, again, who knows what will happen going forward. Like the, the fact that they're in this hole at three and five is a terrible place to be in, obviously, for the long-term expectations of the team. But like, if they compare league average defense with an offense with Russell Wilson, they are a potential deep playoff contender here. Is that too positive to look at the situation? Yes, because there's still going to be a situation where like best scenario, they're maybe could sneak into the sixth seed, maybe. If you did that over a full season, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yes. In that scenario. 
By the way, according to stathead.com, in the Russell Wilson era, only three teams have allowed opponents to convert fewer than 30% of their third downs over a full season. Man. All right. So that's, that's again, not sustainable. Well, and I think it'll especially not be sustainable the two weeks that they come back, the first two weeks back from bye against Aaron Rodgers and Kyler Murray. But also remarkably, in the Russell Wilson era, this is their best opponent third down percentage in a season thus far. Wow. This is better than any Legion of Boom year. And okay, here's the thing. The quarterbacks that they've played in these last three weeks are bad. They've played worse quarterbacks over periods of time. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that these three quarterbacks share in common is that they're low percentage quarterbacks. Because even Jameis Winston, prior to his unfortunate ACL injury, I mean, he was like fourth in QBR, but his completion per- his completion percentage is in the bottom eight in the among qualifying quarterbacks, along with Ben Roethlisberger and Trevor Lawrence. And that's an interesting contrast to the two quarterbacks we're going to face outside after the bye, Aaron Rodgers and Kyler Murray, who are both in the top seven in the league in that. Oh, they're going to get wrote. I mean, they're, you know, you look at, let's say, DR, DVOA, Kyler, Kyler Murray and Aaron Rodgers are top eight quarterbacks in the league by no matter what measure. At the same time, you hear what I'm saying, like, Trevor Lawrence is one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL as it is right now. But like, this wasn't a stretch of three of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL right now. Like, and that's what they faced at the end of last year at various times. Right. They played a game against John damn Wolford. Like. (laughs) Well, put some respect on John Wolford's name. Jameis and Ben Roethlisberger are competent NFL starting quarterbacks. They're in the Geno Smith territory. I think Jameis is better. I don't, I don't know if Steelers fans would agree that Ben Roethlisberger is still in the competent starting quarterback category. But like you look at it statistically and he is. Is he? No, I don't agree with that. He's 26 in the CPOE plus EPA composite. I guess so. He's 17th in DVOA. Like he's, he is an average quarterback at this point. Uh, I think that might be a little generous. Okay. Anyway, but they do have some worse quarterbacks ahead on the schedule. Tyler Heineke, Jared Goff, Justin Fields, Davis Mills, maybe Tyrod Taylor by that point, all ahead on the schedule. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are reasons to feel optimistic about the chances of getting into the playoffs, especially because Russell Wilson's already gripping and throwing the football a day oh, after yeah. the pin was yeah, taken out is. of his finger. Yes, he is. Okay, so you look at this DBOA-wise, the quarterbacks that you mentioned, Heineke's 24th. Uh, Goff is 28th. I'm looking at this DR. Goff is 28th. Davis Mills is 29th. Justin Fields is 33rd. Like they have basically on the schedule the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. Weirdly, they only have the best quarterbacks and the worst quarterbacks. There's no average quarterback. They just played the average quarterbacks. That's what I'm telling you. Jimmy Garoppolo is the average quarterback left on the schedule. Trey Lance? (laughs) I I think Jimmy will still be starting at that point. We'll Uh, see. Man, Jimmy Garoppolo also just like exactly average. It goes James, Jimmy, Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah, that water is going to find its level, and that level is uh, sea level. They did they they did the average quarterback time period. They've got the elite <laughs> quarterbacks and the bad quarterbacks left, and Jimmy <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo. That, but you saw that basically like the teams that had the their playoff odds jump the most by football outsiders, despite the fact that DVOA didn't like this game, 
Football Outsiders playoff odds did like this game. Obviously, anytime you get a win, it's really nice. Well, they but, liked the Jameis Winston injury. Exactly. And they liked the Vikings Lizzie at home to the, to the Cowboys without Dak Prescott. And th- those two pieces are pretty huge here. But uh, Again, I mean, the, that going up was to 33%. For a team that was two and five a week ago, 33% Fair. is a great place to be. Fair. The, there's been... As frustrating as the Seahawks are, they are not a bad team. How sustainable do you think this this defensive turnaround is? Is it sustainable enough that... Yeah, I mean, I said it earlier. I think they're going to be an average defense going forward. And if they are an average defense, does that mean... Can you sneak a win out against the Packers or the Cardinals with... Let's assume... Maybe this is generous. Out of those three matchups, can they sneak a win out? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Can they sneak two wins out out of these five games, Packers, Cardinals, Cardinals, Rams, they basically have to beat the Niners. Yeah, I mean, they, they probably need three out of those if they're going to make the playoffs. Like, I, I mean, I don't think an eight and nine, uh, well, I guess a nine and eight record might make the playoffs. But at worst, you have to be two and three against us and probably you have to be three and two. It's just the the margin for error is extraordinarily slim. They have to beat every bad. And if we know that something about the Seahawks is that they they have some errors, even when they win the Super Bowl, they lose some ugly games at home. And there's so many options for that at the end of the season. The oh, opportunities dear. for it. But I do think they're probably going to pick off one or two games that we're maybe not expecting them to. Uh, again, if Russell Wilson is healthy, you look at DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett like. This is in with Wait, Russ. Now, we have to hope that Tyler Lockett stays healthy because obviously that's been an issue in the back half of previous seasons. But nothing has happened to suggest that. I'm just saying. Why do you utter these words? Sorry, knock on wood. Jesus. I'm feeling, look, we're heading into the bye. Things can't really get worse this week. So <laughs> I, again, I'll knock on wood again. Yeah, uh, I sure hope so. It's frustrating. It really felt like like if they'd have won one of those Saints or those Steelers games, which both were winnable, the, the Seahawks would be in a pretty good position to get into the playoffs. You would, know, we know that the their playoff odds over. would be their playoff odds would be over. It was actually shocked. The football outsiders do not have them as like zero to win the division. I mean, they're not going to win the division, but it's not zero. Uh, yeah, I mean, they'd be over 50-50 to make the playoffs if they had could have stolen one of those two games. Ah. Okay. Uh, but the other reasons to basically like the time period that you're talking about of the defense rising to average, I mean, they've been playing in the, since that time period, they've been playing above average. Would you agree with that? And they've averaged out for the season to being an average defense or no, I mean, they're still below average in terms of DVO overall. I'm saying, I don't think that they're going to be as bad as they were the first three weeks. But I do think that the combination of, Mostly at this point, Trey Brown, but some Sidney Jones has solidified the safety at the cornerback position. The combination of Trey Brown, who, I mean, again, it's been uh, two games, three games of Trey Brown. I think three games. His, the Steelers was his debut. He's looked pretty phenomenal so far, though. He's looked very solid for a rookie with no inexperience. And then the other aspect of that is, again, the Ryan Neal piece of it. Love Ryan Neal. Everybody does. There, there have been a lot less games that we've seen. And again, not something by the way, coach who we're going to have the, we're going to have the Ryan Neal episode of the Felton cast. Someday. There we go. Uh, 
Sean Payton's the type of coach who can coach toward getting Jordan Brooks in a, just a horrible situation where he's running down the field awkwardly. And you're just like, why is that? Why is this Jordan Brooks? Well, also took advantage of Ryan Neal with Elvin Kamara in the first half. So. Garbage offense. I hated it. Hated everything about it. I was playing against Kamara in fantasy. Oh, okay. Now, now it all clicks into place. The, but they, they didn't take advantage. They didn't push the defense that much there. And since Ryan Neal has been, been playing more, they've had secondary players defending receivers a little bit more. You know, that Rams game was just like, Sean McVay just really destroyed Pete Carroll in that game and the defensive scheme. But, uh, I mean, their DVOA was not that bad in that game. I did mean, you I watch think, the second half? I think Stafford missed some throws that helped the Seahawks defense. I agree that the process was not as good as the results. But also the Rams have been extraordinarily fucking good all season. Stafford's number one in DVOA. He's number one. He's number one in everything. I'm going to keep <laughs> mentioning this until you stop saying it's a small sample size. It's all on Cooper Cup. <laughs> I'm I'm afraid Cooper Cup played with Jared Goff too. He was excellent. Was he healthy? There was that one year that he tore his ACL. I don't think that was last year, was it? Wow, Cooper Cup's only six in DVOA. It has to be noted. He well, may be number one in DR. By yeah, a it's lot. the volume that's really notable with Cooper Cup. Good God, he's so good. Oh, I hate Cooper Cup. He was, he was healthy each of the last two seasons. It was actually the Super Bowl season where he was injured, right? So maybe they scored more. Th- they would have scored more than three points at the Super Bowl if Cooper Cup. I can't had been believe healthy. how good Christian Kirk has been playing. Is he that high? I did not. I did not. Number know one in DVOA, number four in DR. Wow. To think we're in the same division as both. We're gonna. By the way, we're gonna mention the Von Miller trade. No. <laughs> I mean, it. It honestly, it doesn't affect the Seahawks that much right now. Like it might if they. When well, I guess. The Rams have to win the division for the Seahawks to play them in the first round, potentially, if they make the playoffs. I think there's a good chance that the Rams win the division. There is a good chance they win the division, I agree. But there's also a good chance that they have the number one seed. Well, I I guess so. Yes, that's true. Uh, You know, they've they've been fortunate to only have to play the Rams one time. Look, I don't know how well Von Miller's been playing lately. Like, by all accounts, I think Von Miller's slowed down a little bit. And I, I expect better than the Rams' current edge rushers. And we possibly. saw, I mean, but, I think we saw last what year. What are the chances that we get to like week 12 and Von Miller is out for the year? That's where I just looked at that and I was like, you know, JJ Watt, just like, and then he's done for the year. And it's the same sort of thing. I, I would say that it is more likely I don't likely think Von Miller is quite at that stage of his career. Missed the entire last season of injury. I, he hasn't been maybe as injured as J.J. Watt is, but it is more likely than not that Von Miller, let's say that the Seahawks and the Rams meet in a playoff game. Von Miller will not be playing in that game. I would not say that. I, in fact, I look let, at his... let, me see, let me see what week they play each other. Von Miller, December 19th, Seahawks at Rams. I'm putting it down right here. Von Miller is not playing in that game. What, what do you want to bet on that? Uh, well, it's right before Christmas, so. Something Christmas related. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll, we'll talk offline. Yeah. You have to buy Jan's Christmas present. 
So, so whichever of us loses has to pay for the entirety of her Christmas present. No, I just said you have to buy it. <laughs> Wait, what? You, you're wagering nothing on this. <laughs> this is whether Von Miller plays or not. You, you made the prediction. I didn't uh, say anything. Okay, yeah, no, that, that's the present. Okay, whoever, who, whoever wins this wager, if Von Miller doesn't play in the game, then you have to pay for Jan's Christmas present, and if he does, then I'll pay for it. All right, that's a deal. I think there we go. Better than 50 50. I like my odds there. I'm t- he's not gonna play. Watch him get LJ Collier. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was there was interest in Bud Miller at the trade deadline, as it turns out. <laughs> oh, oh my god. Uh you know, the things that we said about the Seahawks team preseason there's been a long journey that we've gotten here you know they have basically the buy like almost exactly at the midway point of the season and i still think the things that we talked about despite the fact for a little while that they didn't look true i think the things that we've learned through this first half of the season are whether it's running the shane waldron offense that we'd like to see or the terrible pete carroll offense that we hate to see it's still a pretty good offense to a certain extent, uh, especially if Russell Wilson is running it. Shane Waldron is not allowed to run the real offense. There is history I mean, over and over. And over I don't, again. I don't you know. saw it's... those motion numbers. You think Shane Waldron doesn't want to run motion? It this seems Pete, unlikely. It is Pete Carroll's offense, no matter who the coordinator is. And that's, that's the reality. It's Pete Carroll's team, top to bottom. And the other pieces... We talked about it could be an elite offense and it could be an average defense, which could average out to a potentially pretty good team. I think that is still true today. I don't think, despite the fact that they're three and five, I think that is still true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I said earlier. It's they're in a tough spot, but they've got it. They've got the ability to get out of it. And it's a long season. Literally. It's the longest season ever. Indisputably true. That that checks out. There's there's just a lot more football to be played right now. And you know, like I went and saw Jan <clears throat> was telling her how if Von Miller doesn't play, she's gonna want an extravagant <laughs> Christmas present. <laughs> and or l- last week after the Saints game, and she was like, she was like, I heard that the Seahawks can't make the playoffs after this loss. And it's like, I don't, I don't know who told you that, but like, they're still going to play the games. I mean, it's a, it's a game of telephone. Anytime you hear something from mom, it's like, they could still go 12 and five. Even then, I don't know if they win the division, if they go 12 and five, if they just run the table, I, I actually think that they probably would not win the division if they won out, but like they would make the playoffs. Like there's nothing, they haven't lost those games yet. So can we, can we make hats run the damn table, <laughs> run the damn table. Let's start with a Pelton Caspini first. <laughs> All right. I'll get on that. Run the damn table. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.